Good morning, everyone, and grace to you in Jesus' name. This morning, I want to talk first a little bit about where we are as far as our society is concerned. When you look around us, it doesn't look good. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that those who deny God or deny God's existence, that if they continue in it, he will give them a reprobate mind or a debased mind. When you look at our culture today, I am convinced that we are living in a day where that has happened. Look around us and you will see that men does no longer think clearly. Men being the society. When you look at the movies that are coming out, every one of them has an agenda. And that is not a good agenda. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to Romans chapter 1. I want to go through a few verses there as an introduction this morning. But I think it's helpful if we look around us to know where we're at, what time in history, or what's going on in our culture. And so, as I've been looking for the last few weeks, just kind of contemplating what's going on, where are we at, and I am convinced that we are living not where God's judgment is about to start, but rather where God's judgment has fallen on the land. God says when they will do these things, I will give them a, re a reprobate mind or a debased mind. That is a sign of me judging the nation. And we find ourselves as Christians in this nation, and I think we would be wise to ask ourselves, what do we do? How do we live in today's society as Christians? It also is important that we know that our culture is not seeking after God whatsoever. And to go seek from counsel or counsel from the ungodly, the unregenerate, would be a very foolish thing. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 28, says, And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, and they are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice such things. If that does not explain our country, the Western world, even our neighbors to the south, I'm not sure what does. A few weeks ago, Uganda passed a law that banned homosexuality. I'm not sure how many of you know this or not, but the next day, our wonderful Prime Minister stood up and said, what a disgrace to mankind. We know that it was a thing that God would honor. And we have our prime minister saying that that is a bad thing. What a disgrace to mankind. The scripture warns us again and again, when woe to you when you call evil good and good evil. And we see that happening all around us. And I think it's wise for us to realize we're living in a time where God's judgment is on the nation. And so even as I go through this portion of scripture, I just want to point a few things out. It says there are murderers. 
How many children are murdered every day in our country today, the unborn? Our nation is murdering children daily, those who are not born. And so we know our culture is a very murderous culture. So if you don't want a baby, we'll kill the baby. And if your parents are getting too old, we'll kill your parents, because that's the next thing that's happening. And so we have a very murderous country, and God is judging us. That's one of the things. When they receive a debased mind, this becomes normal. It's not a shock to anybody that you hear that there's murdering happening of unborn babies being killed. And yet it should shock us. And this is the culture we're living in. The woke agenda, as I already said, when we think of what the movies are bringing out. If you watch Hollywood movies, they have an agenda. And to sit by and watch these movies without being aware of what they're doing, it's extremely dangerous in my opinion. They're trying to normalize homosexuality and all that goes with it. They're trying to desensitize us as Christians so that we won't make a big deal about it. So that we approve of their lifestyle. And we see that happening all around us. If you speak up against this, you're called a bigot. You're a Nazi, somehow. Because you stand up against what is evil. Not just that, when you think of the public schools in our society, it's an indoctrination of our children. Nothing good, or I shouldn't say nothing good, but very little good happens in the public schools. I'm sure there are some really good teachers, but those who are in charge of our education system have an agenda, and that is nothing godly. And so when we think of what's going on in our country, in our culture, we can see very, very clearly from a few things in Scripture and Romans here, read the whole chapter to get even a better idea, that we're living in the midst of God's judgment on the nation. Not as, not as it's going to start soon, but it's here right now. And it's only going to get more difficult for Christians. They are deceitful and envious. Anybody remember COVID? Anybody remember the vaccine, how good they were supposed to be for everybody? Anybody know how much money the pharma companies made off of those vaccines? How they've lied to people? And so we can see all kinds of things. There's greed, there's deception at large. And so as children of God, how do we live in a day and age like this? If you have your Bibles, turn also to Isaiah chapter 3. Here God tells Israel that if you do not keep my commandments or walk with me, I will judge the nation. And he tells, you how, he tells us how he will judge the nation. And you'll see how very much what God predicts, what Isaiah predicts here has happened to our country. Verse 1 says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judea the stock, the store, the whole supply of bread, and the whole supply of water. The mighty man, the man of war, the judge, the prophet, and the diviner, and the elder. The captain of fifties, the honorable men, the counselor, the skillful, skillful artism, and the expert enchanter. Stop there for now. It says, God will take away from Israel the house of bread, famine. And we may not have a shortage of bread, but when I look around, those who are getting married right now, 
How hard is it for you guys to buy a house? Has anybody noticed things are going up substantially as far as groceries? Famine has started. And so it may not be there's no bread, but if we have no money, we can't buy bread. And so in the last few years, it's become very obvious these things are starting to happen in our country. And I think we would be wise to pay attention to what's going on. And says one of the first signs that God's judgment is on there is your bread and your water is taken away. Your income is gone. Me and my wife were talking this, this week, and when we got married uh, 16 years ago, we rented a house for $625 a month. Those of you who are renting a house, doesn't that seem cheap? You can't get anything even close to that today. And so just when we think of housing alone, things have gotten very expensive here in Canada, and I believe that's part of God judging the nation. And we are living in the world, but we're not to be of the world. So when God judges the nation, the church will feel the pinch as well. The Bible says it rains on the just and on the unjust. And when God judges a nation, the Christians in that nation will also will experience the runoff of the judgment. God removes strong leadership. It says, The mighty men, the men of war, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50, the honorable men, and so on. God removes the honorable from leadership. When you look at our political parties, how many honorable men are there? How many men are saying up, you know what, abortion is wrong? I don't think we can find one anymore. There are very few honorable men in our politicians today that stand up. There are a few, but those who are have no chance as far as our society is concerned. They will not go anywhere unless God does something. And that's the same across the board. When you look at our schools, our universities, how many teachers and professors are there that have not been convinced to teach this heresy as well? And so we see it all around us. God removes the wise and discerning. Going on in verse 4 in Isaiah there, it says, I will give children to be their priests, and babies shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, everyone by one another and everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward their elders and the base toward the honorable. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his family, saying, You have clothing, you be a ruler, and let, those, and let these ruins be under your power. <coughs> Excuse me. In that day he will protest, saying, I cannot care for your ill, for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler over the people. God replaces government with people who are not qualified. And when you look at our nation, I don't think it takes a lot of thought to see that's exactly what's happening. When you look at the nation beside us, the USA, the people that are running for president there are not of the most noble characters, to say the least. And so, one of the things that God says in Isaiah, when I come and bring judgment against the nation, I do these things. And so he removes the qualified people from government and has, so to say, babies, those who do not understand government or governing, to rule over them. Oppression to the people, disobedient to parents, mass confusion, and that's exactly what's happening out there in our society today when you take a look. 
Then going on a little further here in, in Isaiah, verse 8 says, For Jerusalem stumbles and Judea has fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord, to provoke the eyes of the Lord his glory. The look on their countenance witnesses against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their souls, for they have brought evil upon themselves. And that is our nation today. Openly sinning, and they hide nothing, and they're proud of it. And they expect us to also be proud of their sin. When we speak against it, we are called bigots and so on. And so this is one of the signs that we see will happen to them. Verse 10 says, So say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doing. But woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be, a, shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, those who led you, curse you to ear, and destroy the way of your path. The reason God was bringing judgment on the children of Israel here is because they openly sinned and they didn't care and they weren't ashamed of it. And we see that happening in our country. There is oppression, but yet God has a promise in the midst of this scripture, where this scripture as well. Verse 10 says, Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doing. So as we look at our culture around us, as we see what's going on and we know that it's wicked, that it's against God, if we as Christians are faithful, God says He will give us the fruit of our reward or He will, he will supply what we need. And so the question I have even before we go on How do we engage the world around us? The nice thing is just not to talk to anybody, but we're here. The question that came to my mind this week was, why are we here? As I was thinking of what to, what to preach on, one of the questions that came to mind, my mind, why are we here as Christians? Why are you left here? If you're here to praise the Lord, and that's the only reason, you would do a much better job in heaven. And so why are we left behind? And I'm convinced we're here for one reason, that is to give a testimony of the Lord to the nations around us. To lift up a standard against the nation and say, God has said. And as we see the nation around us getting darker and darker, very, very likely one of, some of us here will go to jail for speaking the truth in this country. We'll go to jail for standing up against what is evil and what is wrong. And so the question for every one of us is, how serious is our faith? How serious is Jesus Christ to all of us? Or is he just something that we do Sunday morning, come to the church and it's like, yeah, I love Jesus, but when I walk out the door, I forget about it. And so how serious is our faith? With this in mind, let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Thinking of living in a world like this. We're going to read verse 25 through 34. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, 
what you put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You are of more value than they. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire or the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Right? When we're living in this world, it's easy to get distracted with all that's going around us. And my intention was not to distract us this morning as we look at the world around us, but just to kind of wake us up that we're living in times where God's judgment is on the nation and that the nations around us, the people around us who are not born again, especially those in power, they have an agenda and that is to harm and to destroy what is good and right. And we can see that with what they do. In their own minds, because their mind is debased, they think they're doing good. And so it isn't a physical war we're fighting, but a spiritual warfare. Those around who are making these rules, they honestly think that they're doing good. And those of us who stand against them, they see us as evil. And they're convinced of it. And so as we engage them, as we look around us, first thing I think above all we need to do is we need to seek the kingdom of God. And so the question I have, what does it mean to seek God's kingdom? How do we go about seeking God's kingdom? Number one, we seek, uh, we seek the things of God as a priority over the things of the world. Primarily, it means that we seek the salvation that is, in, that is in the inherent in the kingdom of God. We work out our own salvation. or We seek what does this salvation mean to us. As we look at the world around us, as we see what's going on, we have to know what does this salvation mean to me. We seek what does it mean to be a Christian. We also must seek what or who is God and how does he care for me. When you think of anxiety, most times it's because of unbelief or not knowing something about God. When we understand the Lord that he is loving and gentle and kind and patient and long-suffering, not just know these things about him, but know them personally that he cares for us. When we know that everything God brings into our life is meant for something good, as Romans says, then we can have the faith that, you know what, this may be difficult, but God has got us here for a purpose, and it's a good purpose in light of eternity. So we seek out what is this salvation that we have inherited in Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the parable of Matthew chapter 13. It reads, Verse 44 through 45, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, 
When a man finds it, he covers it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys a field. Is your joy in your salvation? Or is it in the things that you have? Jesus here says that our joy, our salvation is like a jewel that you find in a field. And you forsake all that you have to obtain that jewel. Because that is by far more precious than anything else. And so the question is, how precious is our salvation? Does it really mean anything to us? Or have we forgotten, as Second Peter says, that we were purged from our old sins? How important is our salvation? Verse 44 and 45 and 46 says, And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one, finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So again, Jesus twice says that it's like finding a pearl and giving up everything we have for that one. So when we think of the gospel or salvation, it requires for us to be in completely, not half-hearted. So when we seek the kingdom of God, it means we forsake everything else and seek God's kingdom. We seek what does salvation mean to me and we forsake whatever else is there. Just a little note I have here as well. It says, this does not mean that we should neglect daily duties that help sustain our lives. Certainly not. But for the Christian, there should be a difference of attitude toward them. If we are taking care of God's business as a priority, then He will take care of our needs. In Matthew there, Jesus says, If you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, then all these things will be added onto you, the things that we need. That means seeking His salvation. It also means that we live in obedience to what He has commanded us to do. living in an obedience to what God has shown us in His Scriptures or in the Scriptures. And then number three, sharing the good news of the kingdom with others. Having this gospel, this jewel that we have found, we ought to be busy telling those around us. If we want to save our fellow man who is not born again, it doesn't happen by us not sharing the gospel, but rather it happens by us sharing the gospel with them. And so how do we know that we're truly seeking God's kingdom first? Where do you primarily spend your energy? It's a very simple question. Where do I spend my energy? Where do I spend my resources? What am I seeking? Am I seeking the pleasures of my own flesh? The enjoyment of my own lifestyle or whatever it may be. But where do I spend my energy and where do I spend my finances or resources that I have? Is all my time and money spent on things that achieve, on things and goods that, that will, let me start here again, Just give me a second. Is all my time and money spent on goods and activities that will certainly perish. Where am I spending, where are we spending our time and our efforts? On things that perish after we are gone or is it on things eternal? 
And these are just some thoughts that have been going through my mind this last while. I've been seeking the Lord and I've realized in my own life, you know what, I've really come short of seeking God's kingdom. And so as I'm preaching here this morning, I'm talking to myself probably more than to anybody else. What is my time? Where is it invested in? And I find for myself, it's very easy to be distracted with all kinds of things that have no benefit at the end of the day. I'll go to bed at the end of the day and say, what was that for? Why did I spend that half hour or that hour or whatever it was on, the, on my phone or whatever else it may be? There is no profit. It wasn't edifying. It wasn't building me up. And I've just wasted time. There are many, many things that come. And these are just things that have been pointed out in my own life right recently that these things need to change. So what are we spending our time and our energy? Are we working really hard just to have a nicer place here on earth or are we working hard to advance the kingdom of God? Uh, another thing I found from Warren Wiersbe's book says, believers who have learned to truly put God first may then rest in His holy dynamic. All these things will be given to them as well. If we seek God's kingdom first, in other words, we do not worry about our daily provision because we know God has promised that if I seek Him and His kingdom first and His righteousness, everything else that I have need will be provided. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 10 through 20, says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. <clears throat> for you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to be abound, how to abound. In any in every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing the secret of facing plenty in hunger abundance and in need. I can do all things through Christ who strength, strengthens me. Yes, it was kind of you to share my troubles. In, your Philippi in you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I was in Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that, is, that increases your credit. I have received full payment and more. I, will, I am well supplied having received from Ephrodotus the gift that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the richness and glory of Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul here is telling the Philippians that when I was in need, you supplied my needs. As a result, he gives them this confidence that as you have needs, God will supply what you need. And we're very familiar with the verse 19 there. It says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the richness and glory in Christ Jesus. And we know that to be true. We believe those things. We quote them very often that God will meet our needs, and He does. But sometimes the way God meets our needs are not the way we have expected them to be. We look at Paul's life too. He says he has been in, in need and also in abundance. 
but he's found Christ to be enough in every situation. So God's idea of what we need is often different than ours. In his timing, he will openly or occasionally meet our expectation. For example, we may see our need as riches and an advancement, but perhaps God will see it as a time of poverty or loss or some time of solitude. God knows what, he, what we need. And so when we're seeking God's kingdom, we know God to be good. And we know that everything God does for me and for my family and for those who are His children is good for them. We can have the confidence that whether it's a difficult time or a time of plenty, that God is doing something good. And just a, when we think of Job, we see that he went through a difficult time. Yet the whole time God was there. He wasn't removed from the situation. And God allowed him to go through a difficult time. But we know at the end of the story of Job, he was restored. We also see Elijah, King, uh, Queen Jezebel, broke his spirit to where he ran away. And he went through a time of difficulty. And yet we find afterwards God restored him. And so maybe God is allowing us to go through a difficult time. Maybe he's testing us in some way to increase our faith. But if we are God's children and we're seeking his kingdom first, and we're walking according to his will, he says everything that I allow to come into your life is meant for good. It is meant for something better for eternity. So when we think of God supplying all our needs, we have this false gospel out there that God wants us to be rich. And we do not see that in this verse here in Matthew. It says, seek the kingdom of God first and His righteousness, then all the things that we need will be added. And so we know, according to this scripture, that wealth is not always what's best for us. Rather, sometimes a time of destitute is best. This week, too, I was thinking of Richard Wormbrandt. He lived in a culture, too, that was very hostile towards the children of God. And if you're familiar with the story, he's the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. There was a time that he stood in a group of pastors, or he was called to a meeting with a group of pastors. And they were called to compromise on their faith. And one by one, the church has said, yeah, we'll compromise, we'll compromise. But Richard stood up and said, no. We stick to the Word of God and we stand on the Word of God. They would not compromise. And if you're familiar with the story, he, has, he was persecuted, he was imprisoned, he was tortured in many, many ways. He was told in prison that his wife had left him, was remarried, to do whatever they could to break him. And he remained faithful. He came to America and he said he would rather be going back to his home country in solitude confinement because that's where Christ was. He couldn't stand to see compromise as it was happening in America. And this is going back probably about 40, 50 years ago. And so when we think of where our nation is, I honestly believe a big part of it is because Christians have compromised. We haven't held our government accountable. We haven't held our brother accountable. 
And rather than fighting back against abortion and so on, and I'm as guilty as anyone else, we just sit by and do nothing because it's easier. But if we want to remain faithful to the Word of God, if we want to seek the kingdom of God first, the time will come where we must stand up. And I believe the time is now. We need to stand for what is right and what is true. As we live and as time goes on, things only will get darker as far as the society is going. But the darker the society, the darker the world, the brighter the light of Christ shines. And so in closing, we'll go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Very familiar scripture to us. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven or from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel. I've asked myself this question this week. Am I ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Am I ashamed that I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again? Or am I proud that he died for my sins? Where are you at? The question is to all of us now. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? When you go to your workplace, is that something you don't want anybody to know? When you are in the school or wherever you are, your family gatherings, let's not bring up the gospel of Jesus Christ because I'm ashamed of it. Are you ashamed of the gospel? To be ashamed of the gospel means to disgrace or personally humiliate it. Does the gospel humiliate you? Do you find the gospel humiliating? A person ashamed in this way is like someone single out for misplacing his confidence. Do we trust the gospel to save us? Do we trust the gospel is the good news? Or are we thinking we've misplaced our confidence in the gospel? That on that last day it will actually let us down. Good questions to have. Goes on, says he trusted in something and then that something let him down. The word can refer to dishonor, becoming a form or forming the wrong alliance. When we put our faith in the gospel, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, have we given our alliance to the wrong person? I'd say no. Going on, it says, when Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, he's saying that his confidence in the gospel is not misplaced. There is no disgrace in declaring it. Paul had given his life to proclaim the truth of that gospel. And we see that throughout the New Testament, that Paul was not ashamed of this gospel. And he was ridiculed for it. He was beaten for it. He was stoned for it. He got up and he never once said, you know what, it's not worth it. I don't trust this gospel. He explains why he did not believe that, his, that he had wrongly identified with Jesus and why proclaiming Jesus' message was his life work. Romans 1.17 For in the righteousness of God is revealed by faith 
for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul was convinced when it comes to the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. He was not ashamed of having this righteousness. So to live unashamed of the gospel means we proclaim it. But it also means that we apply it to our lives. Not only do we proclaim the gospel, we also apply our lives to it. And we see that Paul's life choices definitely supported this. He did not preach one thing, then afterwards live a completely different life. If we're not ashamed of the gospel, that means our life conforms to the gospel. And it is seen by men by our actions, and it's also heard by men by what we proclaim. So to live unashamed of the gospel means that we, like Paul, allow it to demonstrate our lives to the extent that everyone within our sphere of influence can see that we have been with Jesus, as did the apostles in the book of Acts. We know not where these guys learned these things, but we know one thing, that they've been with Jesus. Is that our testimony? Is that your testimony? Do your co-workers, do your neighbors, your family, do they know you're a Christian by your actions and by the words that you speak? Or do they not? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Paul had been imprisoned because of the gospel in Acts chapter 16. Going from 23 to 24, I won't read the verses, but there's a reference He was chased out of Thessalonica, Acts 17, verse 10. Smuggled out of Berea, Acts 17, verse 14. Laughed at in Athens, Acts 17, 32. Regarded as a fool in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, and then 1, 23. Stoned in Galatia, Acts 14, verse 19. But Paul remained focused. All these things did not deter him from the gospel. Because he knew that it was the power of God unto salvation. And so as we look at the world around us, is the gospel precious to you? Is the gospel precious enough that you're willing to sell everything you have to have this one precious jewel? Do you know Jesus Christ to the extent that it doesn't matter who stands with me? Do we have faith, even the faith that Richard Warmbrand had, when all everyone else said we will bow the knee, he said I will not. And so that's my question for us this morning as we close. Are we ashamed of the gospel? And if we are, let us repent. Let us go to the Lord. Let us ask the Lord for strength so that we would be proud of the gospel and proclaim it to those that are around us. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that it's Christ who has brought us here. We thank you for the message of the gospel. And Lord, as we look at the world around us, we know that things are not well, that things are not good. But we have this promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And we know that you've placed us here for a purpose. And Father, we ask this morning, help us to love the gospel, help us to share the gospel, 
Help us to live the gospel so that those around us who do not know you may come to faith in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.